BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, October 16th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible turns commuting time into time to get motivated and learn more. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash minds. So a lot has happened in the last year, and we're getting to that point in the fall where it's award season, people are looking back, maybe there's even some lists being made about the best of and so forth. I guess we're a little early for that, but it's starting to feel like it's time. And I think that one thing that I've observed that's kind of really amazed me is how over the course of the last year, our president's psychology has been analyzed over and over and over again. So, Kishore... Do you want to take a stab at it? You know, this will be tough because they're, everyone seems to analyze his mental state uh, from our, you know armchair pundits to professional psychologists. But I'm ready to take my turn. So a lot, I think probably the most common diagnosis has been narcissistic personality disorder. And there is some ethical question of whether a person who actually is a licensed psychologist has the, you know, should should diagnose someone from afar without having them in the office or, you know, even make that kind of public pronouncement. And the American Psychiatric Association has sort of waffled about this and kind of gone back and forth, especially when it comes to uh, President Trump. And there's some argument been made that, you know, this is too important to worry about sort of everyday ethics. We need to set really? new, new rules They've... and boundaries. They've waffled on this because it seems totally beyond the pale to me. I, just purely unethical to do that, to to diagnose somebody just from their television appearances. It is. Uh, and yet people do it. So I wanted to talk to the person who essentially wrote the book, who was involved in the publication of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, which is, you know, the psychiatrist's Bible, and in specifically in, in the version in which narcissistic personality disorder first appeared. 
So I contacted Alan Francis, whose latest book actually surprised me. So instead of psychoanalyzing Trump, he turns his lens to the rest of us. And his book is called Twilight of American Sanity. A psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump. And ultimately, his final diagnosis is not that Trump is the one that needs a diagnosis, but rather the rest of us do. Ah, the sweet narcissism of the people that tell others that they're narcissistic. I it, This is so hilarious to me that the tables have been turned. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say about us because I feel like this comeuppance is, is earned, let's just say. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Alan Francis. Every successful business is founded on great talent. And with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office, which, you know, as we all know, is just a waste of time. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash minds. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible turns commuting time into time to get motivated. Their unmatched selection includes business, science, and motivation audiobooks. Amazing narrators turn Monday drive time into productive and enlightening opportunities. Transform your commute. Ride with Audible. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com minds. That's audible.com minds. And if you're not sure which book to download... Why don't you try the book that we're talking about on today's show, Alan Francis's Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, available on Audible for free right now if you sign up for a 30-day trial. Just go to audible.com minds. Alan Francis, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Uh, very much my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to start off by asking you about the diagnostic process. So when you're trying to come up with a new diagnostic criterion for, you know, a particular disorder, first of all, how do you decide that it's time to make a diagnosis? And then what is the process of actually figuring out what that diagnosis should look like? I love that question. It's fresh and it's important to the Trump situation. The um, considerations for narcissistic personality disorder the diagnosis he's been given most often by uh, people inclined to diagnose him. Th these were written by me in 1978 uh, when we were preparing DSM-3. And the reason we included narcissistic personality disorder in DSM-3 for the first time in the diagnostic system was because clinicians would see people with very powerful narcissistic traits who would get into trouble very often with their wives or their bosses, or with aging, 
and would come to treatment usually for depressive symptoms, sometimes for anxiety. And so the narcissistic personality disorder was included in DSM-3 strictly for clinical reasons. None of us ever dreamed that it would become a political football as it has been in relation to whether Trump is fit to be president. And in fact, the diagnosis was almost dropped five years ago in DSM-5 and will be dropped in the international classification of diseases that's coming out next year. So the idea that narcissistic personality disorder would itself be a reason to disqualify Trump as president, that's false. The um, notion that he has the diagnosis is highly questionable. And I think the whole discussion is a terrific distraction from, from the most, much more important question, and that is that Trump is an absolutely terrible president who does awful things almost every day, who's dividing our country, who probably didn't belong in office in the first place and got there through corruption, and that the tools to fight him aren't psychological name-calling, which will never work. The tools to fight him are political tools. It's really up to our Congress and our courts and our press to protect us from Trump. We can't expect psychiatrists or psychoanalysts to do it. It's really interesting that people have this notion that you are either sane or insane, that it's binary, and that if you have a diagnosis, that puts you in one category, and if you don't, it puts you in another. And it's obviously a great source of stigma in this country. So, you know, where did, is, is, this, is this inevitable given the limitations of our minds, or is this something that grew out of a culture, cultural phenomenon? Is it limited to the U.S.? Tell us a little bit about this kind of distinction between sanity and insanity. Again, I love your questions. I think that there are two things to, to be really clear about. First off, being bad and being mad, the distinction between terrible behavior and mental illness, that must be kept sharp in people's minds. There's a tendency in our country to believe that when people do things that are bad, that's because they have a mental illness. Most serial killers are not mentally ill. Most rapists are not mentally ill. Most serial liars are not mentally ill. And most mass murderers are not mentally ill. And most mentally ill people are very nice people who are well-meaning and, and well-behaved. Uh, Trump is in the category of bad, not mad. And lumping him with the mentally ill is both a terrible insult to them and also has us underestimate the fact that he's crazy like a fox that many things he does which appear irrational and would be if the major concern with the welfare of the United States are perfectly rational if the main concern is the welfare of Donald Trump. So he's crazy like a fox when it comes to protecting his own interests and oblivious and irresponsible in protecting the interests of our country and our people. We shouldn't say he's crazy. We should say he's a bad person and a terribly unsuitable president. And so when... When he first became president or even during, you know, the electoral process, there was a lot of armchair diagnosing happening. And there were people who were speaking out against uh, just the ethics of a psychiatrist diagnosing from afar. Uh, what do you think about the ethical uh, dilemma of, of people sort of speaking out and, and saying, you know, trying to make a diagnosis when they're not the person's physician? I'm much more concerned about the practical impact. First of all, the people making the diagnoses usually are inexpert and inaccurate in what they're saying. And I worry very much about the distraction that comes from focusing on Trump's psychology and missing the impact of his behavior. So, for instance, I'm very worried that in this next month, there'll be a tax bill passed that will be horrible 
for the uh, terrific inequality that already exists in our country. And people may not even notice that this bill will be passed because they'll be so much focused on Trump's psychology. I also worry about Trump waking up one morning and pressing the nuclear button instead of tweeting. And so what we need to be doing is not thinking about his motivations. We need to be containing his power. Congress should be passing bills that make it clear that no one person is responsible for nuclear warfare, that we need to have much more of a committee structure. Congress has to reassert its Article I constitutional power to declare war. Many presidents have declared wars in the last 50 years without Congress approving of these wars. We can't tolerate that with someone as reckless as Trump in office. So I very much worry about the psychological name-calling not only stigmatizing patients, not only underestimating Trump's canny um, cleverness in, in self-serving, but also in distracting us from the much more important task of containing the harm he can do with political tools, not with psychological name-calling. I mean, I think one of the reasons that people want to diagnose him is because he seems so unpredictable. And if you have a diagnosis that puts you in a category with other people who have somewhat predictable behavior patterns, is, is that at all a, a possibility where Trump is concerned? Or is he just so far off the spectrum that, you know, no lumping him in any kind of group just wouldn't help us predict his behavior? Trump is predictably unpredictable. And he has glued the nation to our TV sets and our computer screens. I think the best way of understanding this is that he's a reality show impresario rather than a responsible president. And his major goal in life is attention-seeking. Has been for, uh, I've been following him for almost 50 years, and he's always been like this. Um, he would take any kind of press, even bad press, he would feed newspaper reporters stories impersonating someone else just to get into the newspaper. Um, he's running the White House as if it were a reality show with you're fired or off with his head being the theme of the show. And so we should expect a daily drama from Trump. And that's completely predictable. And it's not mental illness. It, it's his way of capturing the attention of the American public. And we mustn't be distracted by it so that we don't do the things we need to do to protect us from his behaviors. We should worry less about his motivations and much more about the impact of his behaviors on our democracy and on the future of our children. So while everyone else is focusing on diagnosing Trump, your book actually turns the mirror in another direction and looks asks us to look at our own sanity. And uh, so I wanted to sort of get you to tell us a little bit about how you came to this uh, understanding or this idea that Trump's rise to power was inevitable and that there were signs within the American culture that this was down the road. Yeah. Um, Trump is a kind of mirror on our soul and the reflection ain't pretty. Um, I was writing this book for a couple of years before he became a serious presidential candidate with the fear that our societal delusions, our denial of reality, was going to have us hand on to our kids a very much worse world than the one that we were given. And so I had been writing about a bunch of societal delusions, the, the, the fact that we've tripled our world population in my lifetime and that the uh, spots in the world that have the, the greatest disasters, the civil wars, the migrations, the pestilence, the famine, 
all of these have, have quadrupled or more their population in the last 50 years and still have very high birth rates. And we're ignoring population control as, as an essential existential requirement if our society is not going to result in, in anarchic culling uh, through, through these wars and, and famines and pestilence. Uh, very worried about global warming. We're acting as if we don't need to take out an insurance policy against it. Uh, we, we buy car insurance and life insurance, not expecting to have an accident or die, but just to protect ourselves uh, and our families from the risks of, of untoward events. We're acting as if until the calamity of global warming has already overwhelmed the earth, until then, we don't have to do much to stop it. And um, going along with that is resource depletion. We're taking the water in the ground, which took millions of years to accumulate, and we're using it in decades. So the, the bread baskets of our country will become deserts unless we figure out a way of getting food with less water. The um, population of the world has gone up directly proportional to the amount of oil we've used, and we're running out of oil. And without it, and without sustainable sources to replace it, the population of the world will be radically diminished. And I, in the book, I have about 12 other similar existential threats that we were ignoring before Trump. Trump took our delusional de denial, our American insanity, and put it on speed. But we can't blame him for the problem. He's a symptom, a grotesque symptom of problems in our society that we were previously ignoring. And, and I think the good part about Trump is he's so bad at what he does. He's so obviously incompetent that he dramatizes all the worst things in our society. And if we recognize that he's not the problem, but that we are, if we start looking at the, the things that he's done and start doing the opposite in each instance, we may wake up from the Trump dark age in a much better position than we were before we started. So Trump could have a beneficial effect if he shocks us to our senses and cures our societal insanity. Yeah, I remember once uh, he got elected, of course, there was this kind of my, I had a, a, a very deep down desire to move back to Canada where I felt like I, my family and I would be safe. And then within a few weeks, I realized that Canada doesn't need me, but the U.S. just might, that I could actually make a difference by staying in the U.S. and you know trying to show uh, people how we can stop the disasters from happening. And you know, it kind of made me wonder if there is a real opportunity here for people who want to make a difference that when, you know, a country is in crisis, this is an opportunity for regular people to leave a mark. Yeah, well, I've been politically missing in action my whole life. Um, major events occurred during my lifetime when I should have been, could have been a participant. And I always spent the time on the beach um, selfishly having fun. And the, um, I guess as, as I got older, I became a more responsible person. And I think the political threat has never been like this before, certainly in my lifetime, certainly not the, since the Civil War has America faced a threat to its democracy approaching what we now have. And in some ways, global warming is a more dangerous threat than nuclear war uh, because it's so insidious that we, we spend less time trying to, to, to um, prevent its worst effects. So I think that it, it's... If I'm in action, everyone should be in action. I mean, I think I was the, the, the um, in some ways, the laziest and, and most selfish person imaginable during most of my life. If I'm scared, everyone should be scared. And we should be scared not just for us, or maybe not even mostly for us. We have to be scared for our kids and our grandkids, that we owe them the um, efforts. We shouldn't say we were sitting on the sidelines when Trump destroyed 
destroyed our world. So at the top of the interview, you mentioned how a lot of people are calling Donald Trump a narcissist and, you know, applying that diagnosis. And in your book, you spend quite a bit of time on American exceptionalism, which is in a sense, a kind of cultural narcissism. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, sort of the history of American exceptionalism and why it's so dangerous? Now, even before there was an America, Sir Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia, and he developed the ideal place in an island off North America. There was this tremendous hope that the new world could save the old world from its troubles, that America was sort of man's last best chance to um, have a redo to correct the, all of the political and religious and, um, and social nightmares that were bedeviling and overpopulated Europe at that time. And America did have a kind of um, sense of opportunity, of greatness. It certainly saved my family. Um, I would, my family would have been uh, killed in, in a German concentration camp had there been no America. And, and for, for tens of millions of people, America was the, the great hope for the future, a chance to get an education, uh, freedom, freedom to get a job that would be well, well above your, your, your possible imagining. I've been very lucky in that myself. Um, America was the, the great hope of the world. Now, we didn't always live up to that aspiration. And one of the problems with American idealism that is that it often was a cover for very shady American practice. And sometimes we could blind ourselves with, with our ideals and not always realize that in, in practice we were li living up to them at all. It wasn't a very pleasant part of American history that we wiped out the Indians, that we subjected the, um, the blacks from Africa to, to horrible indignities w which extend to today, that we created uh, tremendous inequality. The top 20 people in America in wealth own more than half of the population. So we, we have... In our efforts to be great, we haven't always been good. But the, the hope of the world, I think, was and to some degree still is the United States. We've been the great melting pot. And I think we've gone very far astray with Trump. I think that part of that going astray is the idea of America first. If, if we insist on America first, we'll come in last. And, and trying to make America great again at the expense of other peoples will wind up becoming America alone, America petty, uh, uh, America no longer the admired and, and um, followed leader of the world. So that I, I think that we're an adolescent country. Um, we're still a young country. We haven't really found our, our footing. And my hope is that we can return to a leadership position with rationality in the world. The rest of the world is now deciding that we're crazy, no longer seeing us as uh, a helpful go to, to a better future. We have to get back on track. I think Obama was a very reasonable man who could have been a great president and wound up being a failed president because there was so much money devoted to stopping him in his tracks with all of, of, of I think, were good policies. We have to get back to where the people decide what America is going to be, not the big money interests. And I think a, a major portion of the book is a call for, for a kind of populism to, to counter the astroturf, um, billionaire-fed Tea Party populism, a kind of populism that goes back to, to core American values and American common sense. And our people are much less polarized than our politicians. And if you take the big money propaganda 
out of the equation, I think we can return to being a sensible country again. I really believe that a sane America is the best hope for the future. But at, at this point, we've certainly strayed far away from, from that goal. I mean, it seems like even just the whole make America great again, you know, so much of Trump just put, shines a light on the fact that there's so much delusion in America about that, you know, we are the, the country is great in ways. Uh, and you know, an example we, we had just in our on a recent episode is the American healthcare system, which is not good. Uh, and yet a lot of people in America think even even when they themselves are not beneficiaries of America's, you know, of the best healthcare, you know, they still think that it's better than anywhere else. And, and when you look at, you know, statistics, when you look at uh, rankings by uh, non-governmental organizations, America doesn't even come close to being on top. And there's lots of examples where, you know, American exceptionalism is just delusion. Well, we, we spend $9,200 a person for health care in this country. The Great Britain spends 3800 And they come out at the top of, of most ratings, and we come out very, very middling or poor. And the reason is that we're way overpriced, that the drug company prices are obscene. Um, it's really like a pirate saying your money or your life. Our hospitals are overpriced. Our doctors are overpriced. And that we give about one third of treatments we do are, are unnecessary and in many instances much more harmful than helpful. So we have the most inefficient, bloated system in the world. It's very unhealthy for individuals and very unhealthy for our economy. Uh, but it, it's perpetuated by the notion that more care is better care. And I think what we have to do every step of the way in each of our policies is to get much more rational. We have a tendency to make quick, short-term decisions that privilege us at the expense of, of other people and future generations. And very often, in being selfish and greedy, you wind up hurting yourself. And so, but how do you, how do you convince a country to become rational when anti-intellectualism, uh, you know, is on the rise, when people, people really not only don't want to put the time in to sort of think deeply about complex situations, but actively push against it and, you know, vote for Trump? Well, I think that there's never been a time in the history of the world when there's so much information available to everyone and so little wisdom. Um, the Internet's a tremendous tool for good and a tremendous tool for polarization and ignorance. Um, and it's interesting how the brain is constructed. You know, we have within our brain a reptile brain, a mammal brain, a primate brain, and a human brain. They're all compressed in those three little squiggly pounds that um, create our consciousness. And much of what we do is controlled by the more primitive parts of our brain, the more emotional parts um, that, that don't really allow for rational thoughts. The, the part of the brain that's emotional sends many more fibers to the part of the brain that's rational than the rational part sends back to the emotional part. So it's always an uphill struggle to have rational control over over our, our, our reflex emotions. But that's what we have to do. It's what I've done in my whole life with patients. The, the, the work with patients is getting them to reflect on their actions, to discover the denial and the um, self-destructive behaviors, to take things that were previously automatic and, and uh, second nature 
and subject them to rational thought and to find better ways of living based on what, what really responds to the needs of the moment that's adaptable rather than what comes naturally. And that's what we have to do as a society. Now, we had a leader in Bill Clinton, definitely a flawed human being in all sorts of ways. But under Bill Clinton, people were willing to forego a tax cut in order to save funds to protect Social Security. They were willing to delay current gratification in order to have safety for the future. And that happened because he was a very ex um, effective spokesperson for that policy. We need to elect leaders that can bring us along to rational decision-making. And Obama was one of these. Obama was a failed president, not because of anything about himself, except perhaps he was too noble. He wasn't a good street fighter. But he failed because a tremendous amount of money was mobilized in order to create as much divisiveness in the country about uh, about race, misogyny, um, about um, radical religious issues in terms of abortion and um, birth control, that this money did its best to cripple his best efforts to make us more rational. So we need to have a system that allows the people to speak because the people, by and large, are more rational than the politicians and allows the uh, most effective, the most rational of politicians to be elected. Let's not forget that the system is rigged and that Clinton did win by 3 million votes and that because of how the elective, uh, the electoral college is, is uh, jiggered and even more the, um, the gerrymandering in states, that we at this point have a small minority of people who are very wealthy and very clever at propaganda controlling the national dialogue. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not this way in most of the other developed countries of the world. And we have to get sane again. So you also talk about some of the other reasons why Trump triumphed over Clinton that highlight some of the other ills in our society, misogyny, racism, uh, a sort of, you know, following of a con man. So has anything, do, do you think that our uh, having elected Trump and the recent events that, you know, have occurred across our country that sort of really puts the lens on some of these ills are going to change the way people vote in the next election? Or do we need to eradicate uh, misogyny and racism first? Well, I think Trump is the, the, the great good of Trump is that he's casting this reflection on us and, and people with eyes to see will not be pleased by it. So I think that um, let's, let's take the religious right as a first starter. There is no person in the world less like Jesus than Donald Trump. Jesus was a man of charity and love. Um, Trump is a man of greed and hate. Jesus cared most about the poor. Uh, Trump tries to w take away their health care coverage. Um, the, Jesus never once spoke about abortion and birth control or, or gay love, even though these were very common in the Roman Empire. He never preached against them. He preached against religious hypocrites. I think that um, Trump is like the rich man who can't, like a camel cannot get through the eye of the needle. And religious people who've supported Trump have to begin wondering about whether he, it's really a Christian thing to do to support his policies. I think that the patriots in America 
must worry about Trump's love affair with Putin and Russia and his distrust of our own intelligence agencies. And I think that patriots will start peeling off and no longer seeing Trump as the, their, their future. I think that people lose co coverage. I think the, the um, common man is most likely to lose health care coverage. And many of these people voted for Trump and will be disillusioned by that. I think that there's been no more... Um, ridiculous uh, choice for um, furthering the economic interests of the common man than Trump and his billionaire cabinet now suggesting a ridiculous tax cut for the rich and the greedy corporations. And I think that people who have decent people don't want to be represented by a president who condones Nazis and uh, Klux Klan racists and anti-Semites, that these two will begin peeling off the, the Trump base. So Trump once said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose his voters. And that may be true of 10 to 20 percent of the population of the United States the, who are diehard lovers of Trump. But I think that gradually he's losing support. It's happening already. It will continue to happen. And in presenting such a grotesque face to horrible policies, he's painting them in the bad light they deserve, not the sugarcoating that comes with well-financed propaganda. So in some sense, Trump may be the shock treatment that cures our societal delusions. You know, I think initially when someone is, you know, sick or needs help, no one likes going to psychotherapy. It's hard. <laughs> you know, it's hard work. Psychoanalysis is challenging and emotional and difficult. And it sounds like as a country, we are kind of now going through that. So is there anything that you have, have, you know, any insights that you have from your practice as a psychiatrist that can give us a clue as to how to make this painful process of psychoanalysis more productive and, you know, ultimately lead us to become a better country? I think it'd be less psychoanalysis and more cognitive therapy. But yes, I think, first of all, you can't treat people you don't like. You have to have empathy for the people that, whose views you're trying to um, gradually change. You have to first find a way of accepting where they are when you begin. And I think that while there are some people who follow Trump who are despicable and hard to have empathy for, including Trump himself, that most of the people who voted for him voted for him for very good reasons. That with the mounting inequality in our country, lots of people and many regions of the country have been left out. In, in small towns across America, as you drive in, in, in the town, you'll see that the, their stores are boarded up, uh, they can't attract doctors, the schools are closing, the young people have to join the army because they have no other jobs to go to. The message that was sent by the country in electing Trump is an important message for us to respond to and to take seriously and to try to cure. Trump is the worst possible messenger for that message. He's a charlatan and a con man, but we mustn't disrespect the people sending the message or ignore the message that they sent. And I think that the, uh, the Democratic Party has been weak in victory and pathetic in defeat in, in, in finding a way to connect with the people it tries to help. So we have this terrible par paradox with the Republican Party doing everything possible to feather the nests of billionaires and corporations, and yet getting the support through propaganda, through emphasizing racial division, misogyny, and the um, and social, you know, radical so social values. Um, that the Republican Party has been able to capture the loyalty of people who it's at the same time fleecing. The Democratic Party trying 
in its own weak way to help that group has somehow lost connection with it. And I think that has to be corrected. And I'm a very strong believer. The book expresses the belief that we can't depend on the politicians, that they're not going to cure the sick society because they're paid not to. That we as a people, we the people have to take over our country again. And that can only be done by concerted community action. And 2018 will be the test of that. Um, the system is ridiculously rigged towards reelecting people in office because of the way the, the districts are gerrymandered and the way the funding goes. And the question is whether money power will win this election again or whether people power can begin taking back our country. So I really like how you distinguish psychoanalysis from cognitive therapy, and I'm glad to hear that cognitive therapy is where we should be heading. Um, I want to remind our listeners that Alan Francis's book, Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I want to end with a a sort of dip into a, a big section of your book, which is on the pursuit of happiness and how that ties into this kind of doomsday view that, you know, we are off the rails, that there are so many of these existential crises about to hit us. Uh, so where does the pursuit of happiness fall in? Well, we're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. It, it doesn't come from um, Amazon or a shopping mall. It doesn't come from uh, going to a Trump hotel. It doesn't come from uh, consumerism. That all the studies show that, that happiness is related most to the things that made us happy 50,000 years ago. Uh, love family, friends, nature. And I think what we have to do as a country is think less about how much we can consume and, and more about how we can have develop relationships with people that, that are satisfying. Um, it, it's an emptiness in ourselves to feel that the only way we can feel happy is by buying more stuff. Donald Trump represents in pure form everything that's wrong with America. And I'm hopeful that his presenting it in so grotesque a light will get people back to the basics of what's important. And I'm hopeful that he doesn't divide us, that people don't feel that because someone is a Trump supporter, we can't be their friend or marry them or um, have a civil discussion with them. I think this is a temporary American insanity and that we can get back to uh, on the tracks towards being the kind of country that the, the founding fathers hoped we would be. Well, here's to hoping that you're right. Alan Francis, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you again for inviting me. That was really an eye-opening interview. And it harkened back to a few weeks ago for me, uh, seeing all those players take a knee in the NFL in response to comments that the president made and some in support of what Colin Kaepernick was was doing. Because I remember the, the criticism of what they were doing was rooted in this idea that uh, we don't disrespect the flag because there is such a thing as American exceptionalism and that we all honor that flag and honor that exceptional quality that only this country has. Uh, which struck me as kind of a funny argument. And I've been hearing that phrase a lot. So it was interesting to hear it come up so pervasively throughout your conversation. Yeah, you know, when I first got the book, I, I thought, oh, you know, this is someone who's taking advantage of an opportunity that's presented itself and, you know, trying to make something out of, you know, potentially nothing. And But as soon as I got to the American exceptionalism chapters, I thought, 
oh, this makes so much sense to me now. And I see where he's coming from, this sort of delusion of exceptionalism uh, that is in some ways certifiable, and yet it's incredibly prevalent. And, you know, interestingly, I think it does very much tie into what's been happening recently in the, in the NFL. You know, in the back of my mind, and especially hearing the conversation that you had with Alan, was, is this a delusion that comes with years and years of of perceived success. And so that's your perception of what the future will be too. So we have a whole host of people, the majority of Americans that have lived in really prosperous times uh, for the most part. A lot of people are struggling now, but for the most part, going back to you know the 50s, this has been really successful. So why do we have any other feeling? And would that track the same in Roman times? You know, right up until the Visigoths are coming over the hill where they're like, well, Rome's the best. It's the jewel. Nothing's ever going to defeat us because why would it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why people write books with titles like, you know, The Decline of the American Empire, uh, because there are a lot of parallels with what was happening in Roman times. And, uh, you know, I think there is a danger to that, that, you know, we we fiddle while Rome burns. Uh, and although I, I am feeling more, more and more confident as I as I see that people are not you know, necessarily that, that, you know, having these conversations to begin with, that, that people are not just taking it and that, you know, there is a sense that this is something that's worth talking about and thinking deeply about. And not just, you know, if you had asked me even, you know, two months ago, is patriotism a positive attribute? I would say, well, you know, I don't always think nationalism is the best thing in the world, but like, I don't see anything wrong with being patriotic. And then when this, you know, when the whole national anthem kerfuffle came back around, I, I really started to question that and, and to think whether there really actually was a negative side to patriotism that we should consider uh, and and that, it, you know, it comes out of a potentially a diluted frame of mind. So our discussion started with the notion of how how nefarious it can be to do some diagnoses from afar. Um, <laughs> now that you've heard Alan's argument, do you see yourself making any diagnoses over television? Um, no, and you know, and and I'm I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, so I you know I, I don't have any qualifications to do that. But also, then therefore, no responsibility to and I, I didn't take any oaths that I wouldn't. Um, and and I certainly don't want to generalize for the entire American public. And you know, I don't think Alan Francis wants that either. But I think the point that he's making, which I think is well worth taking, is that when we focus our all of our attention on one individual. Um, who is essentially a symptom of a larger problem, we are allowing ourselves to ignore the, the larger disease and that it's important to be reminded of the fact that, you know, this is a disease that has, you know, that has deep roots in this country and it's one that is going to take a long time for us to cure if that's ultimately our goal. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, any diagnoses that you've come up with for either of us or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rianchian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible turns commuting time into time to learn and get motivated. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.